Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Frank Blake, the former chairman and CEO of The Home Depot. It's funny, he calls himself the accidental CEO. And it was a bit of a surprise when he was appointed back in 2007. I mean, come on. It's not every day that a former lawyer for General Electric finds his way to the top role at a home improvement store. But his success at the Home Depot has been anything but accidental. He really turned the company around. And one of his biggest strategic moves was to stop relying on opening new stores for growth and instead focusing on generating more sales at existing stores. And guess what? It worked. This shows us as leaders that sometimes growth for its own sake isn't the right goal. Instead, we want to strive for excellence, getting back to basics, being brilliant at what we do, knowing that growth is going to come along with it. In Frank's words, it's a compelling, fascinating, never-ending journey when we aim for excellence, not just growth. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon-to-be-yours, Frank Blake. Well, Frank, it's so good to catch up with you. You know, I, I remember how much Wendy and I enjoyed spending time with you and, and Liz when we we attended uh, CEO best practice meetings together. So I, I hope you're doing well. I am, and this is a highlight. We want to get to what you did at Home Depot in your career, but you know, I, I also understand that you're currently the chairman of, of, of Delta Airlines. And I just wanted to ask you a question. What's it been like uh, in that industry in the midst of, of this whole pandemic? So, David, you can you can imagine, or if you can imagine, in February, uh, we thought we were on our way to the best year in Delta's history. Then the pandemic hits and the shutdown hits, and uh, not just Delta, the industry stops. You go down 95, 97% in terms of people traveling. And I... I I've always been impressed by the CEO of Delta at Bastion, never more so than now, how quickly he pivoted to the core mission of preserving cash, preserving the airline, treating people the right way, treating his employees the right way, ensuring their safety and health, and ensuring the safety and health of our traveling uh, customers. Really an amazing effort. But it's going to be a long haul to get the airline industry back to where it was in February 2020. Frank, now we're we're facing this George Floyd tragedy. What do you think leaders should be doing in, in times like these? First off, I do think I think the communication within the organization is important, and you see a lot of leaders, I think, doing that very effectively. Listening, which is something you emphasize. Listening. This is not something that uh, a lot of us naturally come to a deep understanding of. So we need to listen to the folks who, who really are impacted by these issues. And I think, look, every um, uh, I was talking to a, a CEO uh, last week, and we were talking about diversity and inclusion. And 
one of the questions I think every leader should ask is when they make a promotion within their organization, because it's the promotion that sort of sets your example of what you want from your team. When you promote someone, how often do you talk about what she or he did to develop their people and promote diversity and inclusion? And if you're not talking about that as you promote folks, don't be surprised if you're not getting a lot of it within your organization. I think there's so I think we've made great improvement, but there's so much, you know, you know, there's just so much more we can do. I think this is an area where companies will lead the way, will really lead the way and do um, just a better and better job. Yeah, I, I think it's such a sad time in so many ways, but it looks like change may actually happen in a much more dramatic uh, fashion going forward in this arena. What do you think, Frank? I agree. I think we've seen a lot of improvement, but this is going to um, just get people more committed to it and understand, um, you know, it's this is lead by doing. You know, yeah. all the words, all the great statements, those are all fine. They're important in these this couple of weeks. But in the end, it's lead by doing and set the example within your company. You have a fascinating story. And, and, and one of the best stories that I remember you telling me was what happened when you were asked to be CEO of Home Depot. Would you would you share that story with us? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I know you wrote a book called The Accidental CEO. I really felt like the accidental CEO. So I, um, I'm a lawyer by training. I worked at GE as a lawyer and then uh, moved over into the M&A world at GE, ending up as a, a direct report to Jack doing GE's mergers and acquisition work. I went to Home Depot working for Bob Nardelli, who used to uh, work at GE and for whom I worked at GE. And I did basically the same thing at Home Depot. I bought companies. We bought. We basically put together a whole series of deals, creating this company still exists called Home Depot Supply. Only it's now called HD Supply. Anyway, that's what I did. Uh, I did that for five. You know, I joined in 2002. I've done that for about five years. I get a call from the board uh, in literally the last day of December 2006, saying they're parting ways with Bob. And they want me to be the new CEO. And I can tell you, David, in absolute honesty, that it never occurred to me I was going to be the CEO of Home Depot. Not ever. Not driving along dead of night, windshield wipers. You know, what would I do if I were running this place? Never occurred to me, nor frankly had it ever occurred to anybody else in Home Depot. It was not. And I said to the board, I said, um, First, I think you you might uh, want to think about this. I think you need someone with deeper retail experience than I have. Uh, why don't you spend a day to think about it, and I'll spend a day thinking about whether I can do it. Uh, it was, uh, as I say, it was a it was a big surprise. And obviously, they spent a day and came back still offering me the job and. I, I took it. Frank, it's interesting. You know, you get this job you really weren't looking for, and you you really aren't deeply uh, uh, involved or under. You don't have a deep understanding yet of retail from your perspective. You know, uh, how'd you get started? Uh, so the good news is uh, for me, 
And maybe it was the shock of it and the unlikeliness of it. Uh, I, I felt like my eight years of CEO, a CEO of Home Depot was a crash course in leadership, particularly the first year. I was fortunate to have worked for some amazing leaders, uh, Jack Welch on the business side. I worked for a number of political leaders who I learned a lot from, and I read a lot. I looked at examples of leadership. I became a real student of leadership. And it wasn't anything that I had really focused on before in my life. I think, and I think I'm, you know, this is one of the things that interests me about you. And I feel like I'm proof that leadership can be learned. It's, I, uh, I can't describe, I mean, a lawyer's training and a lawyer's background stepping into a retail business where there are over 350,000 people at the time. Now there are over 400,000 people. Uh, it was something I had to learn. I had to learn. I had to learn quickly. And um, you know, we can go through all the different things I learned. But that experience just gives me absolute confidence that leadership concepts can be learned. And when they are put into place, they make a difference. As I understand it, you, you actually went to your son as well, who was working at Home Depot to get some, uh, get some insight. What did he offer you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, so um, my son at the time was a store manager at Home Depot. He, he served in Iraq and Home Depot had a program where returning veterans could come back and work in the stores. And he started as assistant store manager and then moved around. And he was at that time a store manager. Um, and so I called him and I said, hey, I'm going to be the new CEO of Home Depot. And he laughed and he thought I was joking. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to be the CEO. And I said, I need some advice. When I, and you know this, David, you have these communication vehicles set up within retail. And in Home Depot, we have break rooms and the break rooms have a TV that the company sends in its message. And I had to go on TV to deliver a message to 350,000 associates. And I said to my son, what should I say? And first off, again, he laughed. He said, good luck, dad. And I said, no, no, seriously, <laughs> some advice. What should I be talking about? And he said, well, I can tell you how I start all my weekly store meetings. And I said, great, what do you do? And he said, I read from uh, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank's book, Built from Scratch, which is a great, one of the great entrepreneurial stories. Home Depot is just one of the great entrepreneurial stories. I read from that book. And uh, that's how I start every meeting. And I go, God, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So I flipped through the book to find something that I thought would be relevant to talk about. And Bernie and Arthur talk a lot about the inverted pyramid, where the CEO is on the bottom of the pyramid and the customer and frontline associates are at the top. I thought that's perfect. That's the message I want to hit. And that was my first conversation with 350,000 associates. And for eight years, I tried to figure out what does that actually mean to lead an organization where you put yourself as the CEO at the bottom of the pyramid. I'm sure some of our listeners are out there probably rolling their eyes, you know, CEO at the bottom. Yeah, right. What makes this concept so powerful in reality? So I, I think 
I have a deep belief that, you know, you start off and you say, oh, okay, just as you say, David, you're rolling your eyes and you say, yeah, okay, that's a little forced humility, you know, fake humility, you're at the bottom of the pyramid. I actually think it is one of the most profound business concepts that exists. And it's profound because it's a better reflection of reality. First, as you know, I mean, I wish I had the visual of the pyramid here upside down, but the first thing it impresses on you as a leader is everything you do is uphill. It's uphill. Nothing cascades down. When I hear leaders say that they've got a message and it cascades down through the organization, I go, oh, no, it doesn't. Gravity is not your friend in an organization. You have to push your message up because in the end, people really don't know whether they care what you're talking about. You have to provide that motivating force for them to care about what you're saying. And so once you view yourself on the bottom, you understand, first off, everything that's important is happening above you. You have to have phenomenal listening skills. That's its whole separate topic. How do you listen? How do you actually understand what's happening up there above you? You have to focus on communication because your message has to be simple and compelling because you're, you're counting on the people above you in the organization to relay that, organ- that communication through So they have to internalize that message as their own. And you have to, in my opinion, uh, as you think about moving this ungainly pyramid that's flipped over, you have to win their hearts and minds. As you say, you you have to get people going with you. My own belief that I learned from you and I, you know, boy, if there were one thing I would tell every single leader, pay attention. Pay attention to what you recognize and celebrate in your organization, because that's what you're going to get. People are pretty smart. And when they're working in an organization, they're, for the most part, they want to be successful. But their CEO, how clear is their CEO in communicating what she or he actually wants? The clearest way you communicate it is through what you recognize and celebrate. I learned that from you. I did it religiously for eight years. And I, I feel like, uh, as I say, that the understanding what it takes to move an organization from the bottom rather than the top was absolutely a key to thinking about leadership in the right way. I totally agree with you. When I was at Pepsi, we, we tried to do the same thing. We called it build the right side up company. And, you know, we didn't have the success that I think that you had at, uh, at Home Depot, but it certainly moved us in the right direction by putting the front line at the, at the top, you know. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I read Built from Scratch, you know, myself, and I gave it out to all of our leaders because I thought it was such a fabulous thing. And we actually started a program called Customer Mania which we got from Home Depot, was to get, you know, be maniacal about making our customers happy. And, and I know that you talk about the importance of what you do really mattering. You know, what did you do to celebrate customer service? How did you give it a personal touch? I will tell you, I spent a lot of time on this topic. And um, I, I tell leaders, you know, we all know you get what you measure. I'd say there's a corollary concept, which is you get what you celebrate. 
So be very careful what you celebrate and recognize because that's what you're going to reinforce within your organization. Within Home Depot, uh, so I did a number of things. The first thing I did, and this came from, uh, you know, I was fortunate in my career to work for uh, George Bush dad when he was vice president. And the great thing about that job is, you know, the vice president's staff is kind of small. You see what this guy does. And he would come in every morning. And remember, this is back in 1981, you know, dark ages. He would come in every morning and he'd have a typewriter and he'd write these notes. And you knew it was his personal typing because, you know, if you remember typewriters, they'd be white out and the letters wouldn't all be perfectly aligned. And he sent out notes for the first hour, hour and a half of the day. And as a staff person, when you got a note from the vice president of the United States, you just felt, I mean, so energized. So, I mean, it was such a powerful, positive feeling. And so I took that letter writing thing, that note writing thing, and every Sunday, we had, uh, during the week, we had all of our stores roll up great examples of customer service. They'd send them to the districts, they'd send them to the regions, and then I'd get them all. And I'd write about 200 handwritten notes every Sunday. I'd just write the notes. Thank you, Joe or Jane. I heard that you did blank. You're awesome, Frank. And I wondered, you know, is this going to be as is this going to be powerful? And uh, about the third month in or something, I was walking a store, an associate came up to me and said, I got this note from you. Would you mind re-sending it? Would you mind sending me another? And I said, yeah, no problem. Why? And he said, well, we all, I got this note and we all looked at it. We all figured it had to be RoboPen. You couldn't possibly have written it. So we put it under water. And it ran and we ruined it. So would you write another? <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> right? So, so I wrote the notes. I listened to you talk about putting photos of associates in your office. And I thought, that's brilliant. I'm going to do that. But every time I walk the store, I you know, ask the store manager who's doing a great job. We take a photo. I put the photo on my office wall. I'd say, anytime you come to Atlanta, Come up and look at your photo on the wall. And some of the most emotional, meaningful times for me were associates coming and looking at their photos on the wall. That came directly <laughs> from you. I, you know, we did a lot of other things. You know, we did rings, we did trips, we did all kinds of stuff. But um, I listened. You mentioned at the start that we participated in some CEO, uh, a CEO forum together. Every time you got up and talked, I listened because, and I took furious notes because, you know, I think it's true if you lead an organization of three people, but I know it's true if you're leading an organization of 350,000 people. Bringing those folks along, having them believe in the importance of what the company is doing and, what you, and the validity of what you're asking them to do is, you know, it's at the top of the list of things you need to accomplish. Well, I, you obviously are a big believer in recognition, and I have to tell you, you're, 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 very, you're, you're embarrassing me with the recognition you're giving me. I appreciate it very much, you know. Well, Frank, why is it such a powerful force for, for you, the giver, to provide the recognition? What's the giver get out of it? I'm going to give, uh, first off, it's great 
you know this, when you're writing positive notes to people, you feel better about it. Uh, your life is just better in doing it. But I'm going to give a slightly cynical answer to it because I feel like sometimes people think, oh, recognition, you know, that's a nice thing to do. It's warm and fuzzy. Here's, here's my slightly cynical view. And it goes back to I'm old enough to have collected baseball cards as a kid. And at, when you collected baseball cards, you also sometimes tried to get players to sign. When you have a baseball card of the utility infielder, in, for me, it was the Boston Red Sox because that's where I grew up. So when I got the utility infielder's baseball card and he signed it, what happened? I started rooting for that utility infielder to get in the game and be great because I had his card. I had his signature. This meant something. I feel it's the same way with the people who are working for me. If I recognize them and invest into them, they go, you know, I don't know about this guy, Frank. He's a lawyer. He's from GE. There are a lot of things I don't really like about his background, but he can't be a complete moron because he sees that what I'm doing has value. So I'm now going to invest in him a bit. I want him to succeed. And, you know, the broader, more philosophical phrase is, you know, you invest in others and they invest in your success. But you want, as a leader, you want your team investing in your success. And then you turn the question, you say, well, why the hell would they invest in my success if I'm not investing in theirs? So I think that's why it's powerful. You've done the leadership studies. What I can't figure out, David, is why everybody doesn't get it's every leader's secret weapon. You know, I call it purposeful recognition. And you talk about you celebrate what you're really looking for. You know, if the leader does that, you know, you're going to see a lot more of those behaviors. But it's amazing. You know, uh, a lot of leaders are afraid that if they recognize somebody that they won't work as hard or if they recognize somebody, somebody else will get their feelings hurt or whatever. And how do you respond to that? <laughs> I just, for me, I would, does anybody think that they react that way? I mean, I think you're exactly right. And one of the reasons that this isn't as widely adopted as it should be, but I would just ask people on there, you know, to self-reflect. If someone says to you, you're doing a great job, is your reaction, I'm going to do less? Or is your reaction, <laughs> that's great. I'm, I'm, this is terrific. I can self-actualize. This is I'm going to do more of this. I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. But that's why we're doing these podcasts, is so more and more people will get it. You've got a great example of that, you know. And, and Frank, you really study. You study leadership. You 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 really learn from other people, other companies. I'm sure you studied your highest performing stores. What were the keys to your best stores? If you had to pick one thing, what would it be? Yeah, it's really the same factor, David. It's the, you know, the store, certainly in the Home Depot world, the store was very much a reflection of the store manager. And you get store managers who, you know, they cared about their associates. They were true trainers, teachers. They empowered them. Uh, it's, 
they gave them, you know, structure and purpose in what they were doing in their lives. Uh, it all pivoted around all the great stores with great store managers and so much pivoted off of uh, that store manager. You know, sometimes, uh, and, and this may be particularly true in retail, one of the things I would do is every week when I would travel, I'd try to have dinner on the road with a group of 14 or so hourly associates. And I didn't, it wasn't 52 weeks a year, but I tried to do 35 to 40 weeks a year of at least one dinner a week. And that was so, it was such a great learning experience for me because you talk to associates around the table and you see how much of an impact when they talk about the job. And these weren't kind of job dinners. These were more personal, you know, what's up in your life dinners. How much of an impact the store manager would have on their lives. And I'll never forget one young man who was doing really well as an associate at Depot. And I, you know, he was talking, he said, you know, I owe it all to my store manager. And I said, yeah, you know, I hear that a lot. He said, no, 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 no. I really, I owe it all to my store manager. He said, when I started at Home Depot, I loved the job, but I just had a really hard time showing up for work on time. It just, I had a hard time. And he said, after a while, my store manager pulled me aside. And she said, you know, Joe, I love what you're doing and you're doing a great job, but you show up one more time for work late and I'm going to fire you. And he said, I went out and I bought a digital alarm clock, an analog alarm clock, a wind-up, <laughs> all these different kinds of alarm clocks. He said, I've never been late since. And he said, you have no idea. Just the one simple thing around waking up on time. What a difference that's made in my life. That's the power of the store manager and this, why the store manager is the most important leader, you know, because they build the teams that's closest to the customer. And, and you know, you, you can't make your customers happy unless you've got team members that are happy. You know, I think uh, you probably learned that one too, right? <laughs> exactly right. And that, you know, I get really irritated with people who, you know, downplay retail jobs. And uh, I think there's so much that is learned. I know I learned so much working on the floor of a store. I think there's so much that people learn as they come up through the ranks in a retail environment, starting with that basic, I got structure. This is what I got to do today. This is how I treat my customers. This is how I act professionally. Um, I, at Depot, we were really proud of the fact that 85% of our store managers started as hourly associates. And most of upper management on the store side started as hourly associates too. I mean, it was a way, it's a way uh, to succeed, a path for success in life um, that, is, that is just unparalleled. Uh, my last year as, as a CEO said, I'm going to go out with uh, Bernie Marcus and Ken Langone people you know well, but particularly Ken. And we're going to have lunch. In, it happened to be Columbus, Ohio. We're going to have lunch in a store in Columbus, Ohio. We gathered together a bunch of associates, yeah, 20 associates. We sit down. And the way the lunch started, you know, all the associates had to introduce themselves. The way the lunch started was the first associate saying, Bernie and Ken, I got to thank you because but for you, but for Home Depot, my kid wouldn't be going to college. Then the next associate, I want to thank you because but for you, I wouldn't have a house. I wouldn't have, I mean, 
these are lives that are being created and enabled because, you know, they're doing such a great job of customer service. Uh, I think it is the American dream that plays out. It, it plays out every single day in stores like your former stores and stores like Home Depot. There's so many people start out in retail jobs and end up being chief operating officers, presidents, CEOs of companies, and there's just a long list of them. You know, Frank, you're so humble and you give so much credit to so many other people, but you made a really big strategic decision, or more than one, I'm sure, at Home Depot, but what would have been your biggest strategic decision that you made? Because you were talking about how you were into acquisitions, you sold a Home Depot supply, you know. What would have been, what was your focus when you took over the job? The two biggest immediate uh, strategic decisions that had long-term implications. Uh, the first one was my first board meeting. It was uh, a proposal to sell the business that I had been coming in in front of the board for the last five years, pitching the acquisitions. I, I, we need to sell Home Depot supply, HD supply. So that was the first big decision. Um, it was a difficult one for me, and obviously difficult board. You talk about a tough board discussion. That was an interesting board discussion. But I had the full support of Ken Langone and other. We I had a great board. They were really supportive of it. My rationale. It turned out to be perfect timing because the business, uh, you know, really had a tough time, even harder than Home Depot in the housing crisis. But the personal reason for me was focus. I, mean, I said, there's no way I can run both a great retail business and a great commercial distribution business, which is what Home Depot Supply was. So I need focus. Um, so we sold that business. That was an important decision. And then the probably the most important was we stopped building stores completely, completely stopped building stores. And our economic model had been driven off of we were dry, we were building 200 stores a year and you know that is again if you you well know the retail economic model you open new stores that generates new sales that's you know part of the flywheel and it was clear that our new stores just weren't having the right economic return and we closed we stopped and we took a half a billion dollar write off clearing out the entire pipeline of new stores and it was uh, it was a statement that basically was we're going to rise or fall on our ability to grow sales from the stores we got. We are going to double down on online, which I think was you know we were fortunate that that was uh, we were probably ahead of the game on that, and um, we're going to make some other investments, but we're not building any new stores. So you ended up, you turned around this, uh, you know, iconic brand by basically saying, I'm going to grow my existing asset base, grow my existing stores. You went back to the basics on the customers. It sounds like that's what it was, a back to the basics kind of strategy. Why do you think so many great companies lose their way? Because by doing what you did, you had remarkable success. Oh, uh, David, totally. So this is an odd thing to say. I think that people sometimes they reach too high for growth. They get too complicated in how they're going to grow. Uh, I think I mean, it's odd to say, but I think they actually sometimes get a little bored of doing the same thing. 
and want to kind of keep tricking it up and making it different. I mean, I think being excellent, if you define your goal as not growth exactly, but you define your goal around excellence, and we are going to be brilliant at what we do, your raving fans, we are going to be brilliant at what we do. That is a compelling, fascinating, never-ending journey. If you define your goal as I'm going to hit X amount of growth, you start doing some different things, is my observation. Excellence is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many turnaround stories when people bring in the new CEO and it's always, you know, they usually turn the business by getting back to what really got you there in the first place, which is amazing. But it's amazing. A lot of CEOs derail, Frank. What do you think is the big reason why leaders derail? Doesn't matter if you're CEO, just a leader, you know, as you're moving up the ladder, what causes leaders to, to get off track? So I, I think the number one thing is it's a combination of both listening and uh, encouraging other people to speak. So uh, Bernie Marcus had a great had great advice for me early on. It was the first couple of weeks of being CEO. He said, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be the CEO. You're going to be around the table with your team. You're going to tell a joke and everyone will laugh. And let me tell you, you're not funny. And so what <laughs> happens, look, what happens to every CEO is all the people around her or him, all of the folks who work for them, try to tell them the things they think they want to hear. They don't want to displease the CEO. And so suddenly, over time, you get into a bubble. And your bubble is, gee, how smart you are, how all of your decisions make sense. And it's what I think is the problem for most CEOs is, first off, they don't understand how difficult it is to actually listen and spur communication. They think, I, I joke with people, I say, look, if you're the CEO, and I give the example of walking into a store, if you're a CEO and you walk into a store and say to the store manager, how's everything going? There's only one right answer to that question if you're the store manager. The right answer is, everything's great. You're wonderful. Please leave. That's the only, that's the only thing. You don't want to talk to the CEO about what's really going on. So you have to, listening is a contact sport. You have to figure out how you listen. And how you really sit down with people and understand what the hell's going on because no one wants to tell you. And so CEOs, in my opinion, where they start going off the rails is they're not being told the truth as it really is. And they're not seeking out the truth. They're losing track. They, they've got the pyramid starts with me and I cascade down. They're losing track of the fact that everything important is happening above them. They got to work like hell to keep up with that. You mentioned this earlier. You, you've studied and you have some ideas and thoughts on how you listen. How do you listen, Frank? I mean, what advice can you give on how to listen? I'll give two examples of that. The first example was working with Welsh. And Jack was one of the things that, that 
he somehow, and he is scary smart guy. I mean, and I emphasize both of those words. Both he could be terrifying <laughs> when you were reviewing with him and just unbelievably super smart. I started at GE as a little dinky lawyer. I mean, not a dinky lawyer, but I started GE as a lawyer. Lawyers at GE were like, I mean, that was the ultimate fifth wheel. And yet, even as a lawyer at GE, I had in my mind that the path to success at GE was to disagree with Welch. And of course, you had to be right. If you were wrong, that was definitely not a path to success. But be thoughtful and be confident and be right. I feel like my career at GE was made from the fact that there were a couple of times where I disagreed and it turned out to be I was right. And he took notice. A lot of CEOs, while they say that they encourage dialogue and they want to hear and all the rest of that, they actually don't. Somebody says something different than they think and they jump down their throat. They don't see it. It's a reflex, right? It's a reflex action. They don't see it. They don't see how they're cutting off debate. So that's one example. Then the other example, great one, I learned from a member of our Home Depot board, a guy named Labe Jackson. And Labe would, Labe said, look, the only way you really find out what's going wrong is, and he would walk a store, and if we were doing some project, whatever the heck, Project X, his question would be, why isn't Project X working? And, you know, whoever it was who was with us would go, gosh, how does the board of directors, how does he know it's not working? Well, he has no clue whether it's working or not. But when you say, why isn't it working well, you actually prompt the conversation versus saying, hey, everything, you know, how's everything? It's just one example. But as I say, listening is so easy to get cut off and everything's great until it's not great and then it's too damn late. You focused on your core business and so you... You had to drive innovation around your your, your core business. Did you, did you have any things you did as a leader to really drive home the importance of innovation and encouraging it and making sure that you got it? Yeah. And David, I'd say I did my best at it. I think we built a, a really first-rate uh, website, and we were a little ahead of everyone on that. But I would say if I were rewinding the clock, I was not as good in encouraging mistakes as I wish I had been. So uh, I think any really innovative culture has to have a tolerance for mistakes and uh, a little bit, going back to our other conversation, a little bit of some celebration of some interesting mistakes. And we did that a few times, but I, I, that's a learning I've had more since, how hard innovation is, how the real innovators Everybody wants to pound them into dust, frankly. I mean, you know, you must have known this right? from, your, from your life. If you're really innovating, by definition, no one thinks it's a good idea. It's really easy to poke holes in it. And it's really easy for the organization to ah, you know, ah. yeah. You had so much success at Home Depot. And now you're an iconic leader, whether you would accept that uh, definition or not, you are. You have all that kind of success, but when you look back, did you have you know an epic fail? I mean, is there something that you look back on your career? It doesn't have to be at Home Depot, but just in your life, where you said, "Hey, 
you know, I really miss this one? Uh, I have lots of failures. Um, I guess the biggest, I, I, in some respects, I feel like my first few years at Home Depot, this isn't maybe in the epic in terms of impact uh, to the company, but it was epic in terms of its impact on me. So in addition to doing M&A activity, I was in charge of real estate for Home Depot. And, you know, as I said, we were building 200 stores a year. That is, you know, and these are 100,000 plus square foot stores. So that's a clip. And it was a numbers thing. I'm just an assembly line of building these stores. And as I mentioned, my son was uh, started working at Home Depot. I've been, I was there for a few years and he was out in Colorado. He had been at, in uh, Fort Carson at Colorado and he uh, left the army there and he started working at Home Depot in a store in, in around Colorado Springs. And then his first big assignment as an assistant store manager was in a new store, a brand new store outside of Colorado Springs. So I flew to visit him. And we had dinner the night before, and he had three or four of his army buddies who were having dinner. And the first thing that just hit me at the dinner was just the how amazing these young men were and the sacrifices they had made for the country and how it was so not, I mean, you know, we sort of acknowledge it, but we don't do a great job as a country doing that, really, when you think about putting yourself in harm's way. Anyway, so... Very, very meaningful dinner. And then afterwards, I'm going to visit him in the new store, just opened new store that I'd built. I'd found the real estate. I'd built the store. He gives me the address. I drive down the road. I don't see anything. I circle back. I don't see anything. I drive down the road. I do this loop, a couple mile loop, two or three times before I finally find the store. I couldn't find the store because there was an immense burn in front of the store that was blocking the visibility of the store from the roadside. So that's horror number one, with a tiny, dinky little sign. Then I walk into the store, and my son starts showing me around. And, um, you know, again, you'd appreciate this as a, as a retailer, but everything about the store structure, you could see there were just all kinds of compromises made. Beams were in the wrong place. So just It was not... Well done. And that was on me. This is my son who's so proud of his store. He's just returned from Iraq and I built a shitty store. I mean, I, I just built a shitty store. And why did I build such a bad store? I, I built it because it was a number. Because I was looking to process 200 stores in a year didn't really have time to make sure it was the store that my son the returning iraq veteran would be running and it was my first real aha moment of i didn't i wasn't thinking inverted pyramid then or anything like that but i was thinking I am, I am not looking at my job the right way. I need to look at my job as though the things I am doing, I am doing for my son and take that responsibility on because what I did was appalling. 
I mean, you know, he wasn't saying that. How could you have built this horrible store for me? But I was saying. And that's such a great insight. That's such a that's such a great insight. And, and even though it was a failure, you learned so much. And I think we all have to remember that. It's, 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 you can learn from these things that we don't necessarily do right. What three bits of advice would you give aspiring leaders out there? Uh, the first thing is, I think, just as a career advice, my first perspective is look at your job as solving a series of more difficult problems. Just be looking at your career. What you want in your career is solve the opportunity to solve bigger and bigger problems. Don't get hung up on titles. I see too many people get hung up on titles. It's a curse. Just make sure you're solving bigger problems because the more you solve bigger problems, uh, the more problems you'll get to solve. Related to that, in terms of advancing through an organization, or advancing anywhere, just realize that that's your job. If if you're starting a business, you're solving customer problems. If you're within an organization, you want to show your boss that you're capable of solving these problems. That's what you are. That's your job. So that's the first thing. Think about your job that way. The second thing is I wrestle with this. I'd be curious of your take. You know, which is more important, uh, self confidence or courage? And I, I'd lean into the courage side of it. Do things that you're not completely confident about. Work your way into them. Uh, don't, expect, don't expect that you'll fully understand stuff. Certainly for me, uh, I, I think some of the best growth comes from doing things that are slightly uh, or massively um, maybe outside, uh, outside your comfort zone. Test yourself. Move, move outside your comfort zone. And then, the, you know, the third piece of advice is, is what you teach in your books. I'm sure what you teach in your course is it's, it's um, leadership is about people. So understand and, in, and invest into the people around you, invest into their success. And um, surprisingly enough, as I say, they'll invest in you. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great, great advice. You know, you know, you asked me about courage and self-confidence. They kind of go hand in hand. You know, it's hard to have the courage unless you have some sort of that self-confidence. But I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, I really admire people who will get out of their comfort zone, like you say. That's fantastic. Frank, I've had so much fun doing this uh, conversation. I want to have a little bit more fun with you and, and do a lightning round of Q&A. Okay? So are you ready for this? I, I guess. Okay. What three words best describe you? Oh, uh... I'd say um, I, I, I hope humorous, reflective, and uh, kind. If you could change places with one person for a day, who would it be and why? Wow. I don't know. There are lots of different people, but I'd change places with a great musician. I'd love <laughs> to be able to make amazing music. Uh, and what would be something that few people would know about you? Ah, uh, what would be something? Um, gosh, I uh, I like I'm a big uh, my big love is uh, Norwegian literature and Norwegian TV shows. <laughs> that would be unique. And do you have any hidden talents yourself? You mentioned uh, you'd like to be a musician. No, I wish I wish I had some hidden talents myself. <laughs> I wish I wish I had musical talents. I, I, there are all kinds of talents I wish I had. You know, I understand, Frank, you're doing a podcast yourself. Uh, tell us about it. 
so yes, I am. And thank you, uh, David, for participating. The podcast is called Crazy Good Turns. And we celebrate people who've done crazy good things for other people. Uh, we This is now in its fourth year. I, I love it. I am having such a good time with it. And uh, I loved having you on it because when I think of how I learned about uh, frontline associates and the importance of giving to frontline associates and investing in your people, uh, I learned that from you. I happen to think retail workers are, uh, I think it's one of the great segments of the workforce uh, because you've got people who, you know, you don't start necessarily thinking you're going to make a job in retail, but boy, do you learn a lot and you can grow a lot. And again, I learned it from you. And so it was a great thrill to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks. You know, Frank, I, I appreciate that so much. You're giving me way too much credit here. But Frank, I got to ask you this. Everybody I've talked to, and I believe this myself, say that you are one of the most humble people they've ever met, even though you've accomplished so much. Are you really this humble? No, of course not. <laughs> no, of course not. David, I would say to the contrary, um, I'm, I try to be objective, and we've had a little bit of this discussion, but honestly, if you looked at my background and put me into the job of Home Depot, if I were anything but humble on taking over that job, you'd say, what kind of an idiot are you? <laughs> you, know, you, you should be humble. Uh, you know, there are other things where I, I actually, you know, probably a lot less humble, but no, absolutely not. And, and plus it's a, you know, it would be weird if I were saying, you know how humble I am? I am the most <laughs> humble person. <laughs> David, look, it's, it's no one would have said, this is the guy who can, who can run Home Depot. This is a guy who can run a retailer of over 350000 no one would say. Well, success has many fathers now, Frank. Uh, you know, if success has many fathers. A lot of people really, you know, they're your biggest fans. And, and I, I know I know the guy who, who was the leader in making you the CEO. It's Ken Langone, the Home Depot founder. Because yeah. Ken definitely saw something in me I didn't see in myself. So I owe everything to Ken. Well, you know, Ken asked me, he said, you know, you're going to do this podcast with Frank. He said, you got to get him to talk about his law career. It was distinguished. He's one of the, he, he was a clerk for a Supreme Court justice. He started his own law firm. You know, you've got a lot of humility in you, but you, you've had a pretty distinguished career in whatever you've done, whether it's satisfying Jack Walsh uh, uh, and by taking him on. What do you think is the single biggest trait that you do have as a leader? I like to think that um, love, learning. I, I, I love learning. And I think, um, and, and it helps having done lots of things that I, that I probably wasn't fully qualified for that, you know, it, it sort of gives you a rocket boost to the learning part of the job. But that is why, uh, you know, people like you and what you're doing, the teaching, I just, I hope 
I hope that the people who take your courses and listen to you, I hope they are like sponges. Because what, what I would, I mean, one of my comments is it actually works and makes a difference. And I don't know, I, you know, lots of people do lots of different leadership things, but I believe, and I say this sincerely, sincerely, not because I'm on this podcast, sincerely. I think people have more to learn about leadership from David Novak than anyone else. I think you understand how you get, I mean, nothing we do is done on our own, right? And you get that and you get, I gotta, I gotta get an army behind me. And the bigger the army, the better it is. And you're brilliant. You've got armies behind you. Oh, you, you know, I, I tell you, uh, well, there's no question. No, nothing big can happen by ourselves, And you, you know that. And Frank, you are an unbelievable learner. And let me tell you something. Anybody that listens to this conversation is going to pick up so much learning that they can put to use and make themselves a better leader. This is this is how you lead. You lead like uh, Frank Blake. And Frank, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I, I'm going to bring you back because I I, I I cut about half my questions just to try to keep this within an hour because you, you've got so much to, to learn from. So thank you so much. Well, the thanks go the other way, David. Many, many thanks. Well, I know Frank Blake very, very well. And believe me, Frank is the real deal. I mean, can you imagine how cramped his hand must feel after writing 200 thank you notes every week? Who does that? Well, Frank Blake does. And he does it because when he sees excellence, he wants to call it out. So this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, we're going to take a page out of Frank's playbook. I want you to write some thank you notes to a few people on your team. No, you don't have to write 200, but go ahead if you've got the energy. But I want you to take the time to write some real, genuine thank you notes and do it with actual paper and a pen. And as you write, praise people for the way they've demonstrated excellence in their day-to-day jobs. This simple gesture is going to mean the world to your team members, and it's going to show everyone on your team the power of aiming for excellence and the value that you put on it. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders aim for excellence, not just growth. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.